Hello and welcome to the National Trust podcast. I'm James Grasby, a curator in the Midlands, and in this episode, I'm at Fenton House and Garden. Now, we often convey the history of people, objects and places, but today I'll be exploring centuries of history through some very unique sounds. The stereotype of a National Trust property can be an off-the-beaten-track stately home, hidden deep in the countryside. But there are many trust properties nestled within the hubbub of urban centres. The next station is Hampstead. And today I'm in Hampstead, in North London, to visit one such property. I've left the busy high street in Hampstead. It's been about a five minute walk. And here I'm just approaching uh, what I guess was about a 1690, 1700 townhouse. Two stories with very high chimneys set in the most beautiful walled garden. I'm just going to go up to the door and see if I can find my way in. I just come into a very gracious hall with a taste of some of the delicious things that are in this house. Beautiful 20th century oil paintings, fine clocks, good porcelain. What an eerie, haunting sound. Which I think is coming from this way. Just go through this door. What a stunning thing. What are you doing? Uh, it's good timing. I've just <laughs> finished tuning this harpsichord. What a lovely sound. My name's Ben, Ben Marks. I'm Keeper of Musical Instruments here at Fenton House. Ben, give me a sense of the scale of the collection. Sure, well, we have 20 instruments here, 20 keyboard instruments. There are other instruments beside, but the primary focus of the work that I do is the keyboard instruments. Fenton House and Garden currently has a collection of 16 restored, practically living, breathing instruments for musicians and visitors to experience. A playable keyboard instrument collection of this size is exceedingly rare, which makes it all the more astonishing to find this emporium of endangered sounds at this unassuming urban property. Ben, forgive me, sounds very naive, but it looks to me rather like a sort of elongated piano. It's got this lovely sort of lyre shape in its body. The lid is lifted to reveal the strings. It's got a keyboard, broadly speaking, in the position that I expect a piano to be. But it is not a piano. It isn't, no. This is a, a double manual harpsichord, so it has two keyboards. It actually represents among the largest models that were ever made of harpsichord in England in the 18th century. Would you like to see some more? Oh, I'd love to, Ben. How about we go and meet the oldest resident? Lead on. such a lovely house, isn't it? I mean, there's a musical instrument, in a sense, in the wild. You're absolutely right, James, and, and I think that was very much the intention of original collector, Major George Henry Benton Fletcher. He certainly believed that for the music of the past to be properly understood and interpreted, it needed to be played and heard using instruments that were contemporary with that music. And my goodness, is that it? That's it. 1540. 1540. I mean, it's tiny compared to the other one. It looks to have the same sort of principle, a keyboard and strings stretched over a soundboard with a little bit of ornamentation. But, I mean, a very dainty piece. 
It is part of the plucked string keyboard instrument family, you could say part of the harpsichord family, but it is a distinct instrument in its own right. This is very definitely a virginals. I'm longing to hear what it sounds like. What you're preserving here is not only a, a wonderful artefact, but you're preserving a very rare sound. You're right. There is an element of intangible heritage about it. The Tudor court was full of instruments very much like this one, and certainly Italian instruments were very popular throughout Europe. Of course, its size made it very um, versatile in domestic contexts. After virginals came another form of plucked string keyboard instrument, which we call a bent side spinet, and that's what I'm going to show you next. So we're crossing our staircase hall into another bedroom. A very handsome bedroom panelled, two large windows opening out onto the main street. Oh, look, that's a very pretty instrument. That's not the one we're going to look at. Oh. Come round here, I'll show you the one I want you to see. I'm a bloody fool. These little bent side spinets, they really supersede the virginals as the dominant domestic keyboard instrument of the period and they would have occupied relatively modest dwellings and they would have been relatively affordable. It has the sort of form of a, of a harp that has been laid on its side. Exactly. <laughs> this, you might say, in very simple terms, is a harpsichord that's been squashed at 45 degrees, really. It has a bent side, this curved S-shaped side here. This is a, was conceived for a much smaller space, very much like the one we're standing in. This was actually once a powder closet in this house was where it? the occupants would have had their hair prepared. <laughs> they were, of course, first introduced by fashionable people seeking to emulate the court. Mm. However, they quickly proliferated down through society and became immensely popular, supporting dancing, singing, and all those human interactions of entertainment. So I'm going to play a passapie by Johann Philipp Kernberger, who was a pupil of Bach. That was lively and sparkling, like watching bubbles on champagne. I expect you're very torn in answering this question, but have you got a favourite instrument? I expect you love them all. I do, but I do have a favourite. Now look, that's a very different thing. I mean, it looks, it looks very early, but very dark oak board, formidably square and unadorned with these great cl metal clasps and hinges on it. It looks like a strong box more than an instrument. The element of surprise is, I think, one of its great aspects. Oh, wow. That is sensational. You've got a, a decorate, a painted lid with a wonderful landscape scene of gentlemen riding on horses. Beautiful. We've seen an Italian virginals. We're now looking at an English virginals that was made by a man called Robert Hatley here in London in 1664. This instrument is one of only 22 English virginals to survive. It is one of could be as few as five, perhaps even less, that are 
maintained in playing condition. So it's exceptionally rare. This is also an example of the kind of instrument with which the famous diarist who chronicled the Great Fire of London, Samuel Pepys, would have been familiar. The river full of lighters and boats taking in goods, and good goods swimming in the water. And only I observed that hardly one lighter or boat in three that had the goods of a house in it, but there was a pair of virginals in it. And that's a really interesting reflection on the status <laughs> that these objects had within the home, mm. that they were considered worthy of salvaging above any other chattel that you might have had. They are survivors in many more ways than one. The first house that the collection originally appeared in was in Bloomsbury. War came, Benton Fletcher had sufficient warning of possible air raids and thought it was prudent to move the best things to safekeeping outside of London. The house was duly a direct hit. Unfortunately, as you'll see, many elements of the instruments were lost, like their stands. There simply wasn't sufficient time to remove those as well as the instruments proper. Our next stop-off in the story of the harpsichord family of instruments takes us full circle back to the huge and stunning 18th century harpsichord we started at. It's a remarkable sitting here, as the feeling rather like of being in an E-type Jaguar with this enormous, <laughs> enormous bonnet going off into the distance. Well, firstly, James, this is not the first time that such an instrument has been likened to a car. <laughs> and interestingly enough, the idea of luxury there is just the same. Uh, in the 18th century, a high order of craftsmanship was expected. And that is reflected in almost the luxuriousness of its expressive capabilities. Unlike the little spinet upstairs you saw, this has more choirs of strings and various devices that can mutate the sound or make it more expressive. If I press this pedal here... As you press your, your foot down, louvers open and they drop down raised and lowered, which increases or decreases the volume, I suppose. That's exactly right. It was called the Venetian swell because it looks oh. like a Venetian blind. So this is with the swell down. And now if I open it... What you're describing is a harpsichord that has sort of reached the outer envelope of its function, in a sense. And I think that's really interesting reflection on what the harpsichord was having to do to meet the demands of the kinds of music that were being composed uh, and enjoyed in the late 18th century. The host of music's biggest superstars, spanning Renaissance, Baroque and classical periods, would have played and written music for the harpsichord family of instruments. Here's Dr. Elena Vorotko, musician and honorary research fellow at the Royal Academy of Music Museum. Mozart and Haydn would have been brought up on harpsichords, and Beethoven would have known it quite well. J.C. Bach, he was the most famous and the most fashionable composer. He became incredibly popular. He was writing operas everywhere in England and in France. He was the fashion maker, so when he performed on the fortepiano for the first time at the Thatched House um, in London, in St. James's, in 1768, it almost created an overnight new fashion. That date for me is the change of preference 
almost overnight from harpsichord to fortepiano. The word pianoforte can be translated in essence to mean soft and loud. In a piano, the strings are excited into vibration by little hammers. A harpsichord is a plucked string keyboard instrument. Ben, I'd love to hear the difference between the two instruments. Of course, absolutely. What have you got there to play? Uh, I, Bach? I have, yes. The first prelude from the well-tempered clavier. It may be familiar to you. completely transformed in mood, isn't it? Hasn't it? There's a romance and a longing in the sustained note that is quite different. And I think romance is key there. We call it the romantic era for many of the reasons you describe, a certain sense of lyricism and a lingering quality. And I wonder, you know, given the journey that you've been on today, if that evokes something of the revelatory experience that ears in the 18th century felt when they first encountered the piano, to hear that completely different timbre produced by a keyboard instrument after nearly 400 years of the plucked string. So this revolutionary sound appears and people start to compose for the piano rather than the harpsichord. What happens at this sort of this tipping point in the history of the harpsichord? Well, it's not clear-cut. The two instruments existed side by side quite happily for many years. And in fact, most of the printed music from about the time of the arrival of the piano in a commercial context in England is inscribed as being suitable for both harpsichord and pianoforte. I am one of those people who played the piano until I was six and couldn't wait to give it up. Well, James, I think there's a gap that needs filling. <laughs> How about experiencing a harpsichord? Oh, have you I ever played to. a harpsichord? No, I haven't. Have a seat. I haven't. Have a go. Oh, may I? What a lovely sound, but evilly played. I love all keyboard instruments. The harpsichord, however, has a special ring to me, possibly because in my childhood I loved the music of Bach and the harpsichord was utterly unavailable in the Soviet Russia in rural town. When I moved to England and especially started studying at the Royal Academy of Music, that dream came true. When I visited Fenton House and Gardens, and especially their harpsichord collection, it was like being in a sweet shop, exploring the sonorities of those instruments actually changed my way of hearing music forever. It's a huge privilege to share the voices of the old instruments, bringing these instruments to life to make them speak transports me and the listeners right into the middle of the sound world the composer molded into his music. It connects the music to its instrument. These old boxes are actually real-time machines. It's really quite something to be able to walk in off of the street, to sit at, touch and hear an instrument sharing the same musical language and experience as someone living hundreds of years ago. It's inspiring too 
to see someone like Ben tending to his rare collection of instruments with such love and attention. This kind of work saves these exquisite sounds and examples of craftsmanship from the vaults of history, keeping them living and breathing for all of us to enjoy. Thanks for listening to this episode of the National Trust podcast. You can listen to all our audio series by going to nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash podcasts. If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love to get your feedback. Do drop us a line at podcasts at nationaltrust.org.uk. From me, James Grasby, goodbye. Hi, I'm Michelle Douglas, a podcast producer at the National Trust. We're taking a break over Christmas, but we'll be back in early January. If you'd like to catch up with our podcasts in the meantime, don't forget to head to nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash podcasts. Until then, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year.